Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Fighting Coronavirus from American Innovations ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. From Wondery, I'm Stephen Johnson, and this is Fighting Coronavirus. I think it's safe to say we've learned a lot of new terms since the start of this pandemic. Flattening the curve, social distancing. But one term that's being thrown around a lot these days is contact tracing. Now, it sounds like something from a science fiction film, but it's a concept that has been a pillar of public health for decades. Contact tracing is a process that public health officials use to track down everyone an infected person has been in contact with so that they can also be tested. This allows us to get ahead of the spreading virus, warning people who may be carriers and quarantining them if they test positive for the virus. Combined with social distancing and sheltering in place, it's the difference between being on defense and going on offense against COVID-19. And there's no better person to talk about contact tracing than our guest today, Dr. Jim Kim. He's a physician, an anthropologist, who led the WHO's response to HIV and AIDS, and then, as the 12th president of the World Bank, took on cholera in Haiti and Ebola in West Africa. He's also the co-founder of the wonderful nonprofit Partners in Health, where he led the fight against drug-resistant tuberculosis in the developing world. And now, he's helping the state of Massachusetts deploy an extensive contact tracing program and fighting our new common enemy, with one of public health's oldest weapons. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Dr. Jim Kim, thank you so much for joining us on Fighting Coronavirus. Well, thank you very much, Stephen. I admired your work for many, many years, and it's great to be on the show with you. We always like to start the show just with a little personal question because the crisis has upended all of our lives in so many unpredictable ways. So just first off, like, how are you? Uh, What has changed in your kind of day-to-day life uh, over the past month or two that you'd like to share? Yeah, you know, uh, there's been some blessings in the sense that uh, I have a college-age son and a and an 11-year-old son. And so having the college-age son home with us has been wonderful. I uh, 
have gotten so busy just because of so much experience in uh, responding to previous uh, pandemics, uh, I find myself in the middle of trying to fight this one. And so it's been extremely busy, but the great joy of having both my sons here after a couple of years of missing our older one uh, has been wonderful. I want to get, can you put your children on so that we can interview them and find out whether they're as happy about this situation as, as you are? I don't know. I'm sure yeah. they are. I'm sure they are. So so let's start with your experience, actually, and, and then get into the, the important work you're doing on the front lines with contact tracing. So, you know, you're someone who has seen other crippling epidemics around the world firsthand um, and who's been thinking about pandemics for, for a long time. Can you tell me, like, what about this crisis, either from the early days or as it's developing now, that in a sense most deviated from the way you'd imagine something like this happening? Just before I left the World Bank Group, uh, we co-published, along with the United Nations, another report after the Ebola outbreak in West Africa, saying, once again, we're not prepared for the big one. Here's what it could look like. Here's what it could do to economies. Here's what it could do to people. We've been saying it, but I think even those of us in infectious disease have been surprised at how quickly this has moved. You know, we have 3 million cases of, uh, of COVID-19. Everyone agrees this is the big one. This is the one we told everyone we thought could come. But there's some really interesting aspects of it. So on the one hand, it's not as lethal as either SARS or MERS, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, which is also a coronavirus. But we didn't have this phenomenon of lots of people without any symptoms uh, transmitting uh, in a way that we just can't detect. So this is the big one because it's got some unique characteristics. And, you know, when, when I talk to people who are out there uh, every day fighting the virus, people like leaders at the Korean Centers for Disease Control, you know, they talk about it as if it were, were a, like a human being that's the nastiest, sneakiest, deadliest thing that they'd ever seen. And it's not necessarily that it's more lethal, but it just has a combination of traits that has led us to where we are. And if you look around the world at who's responded well and who hasn't, for the most part, the people who got a really good scare during SARS, who got a really good scare during in, Korea, in South Korea was 2014, the mayor's outbreak completely scared the hell out of them. And so they, they uh, in fact, changed their laws so that when an epidemic starts, uh, a different set of laws uh, go into place because they knew that they had to be ready for the big one. So the folks who are ready, the folks who responded early are doing much better. The folks who responded late are in a big mess right now. And this is what uh, I'm working on to try to figure out, you know, in countries where there are mountains of cases, you know, what do you do to, to start coming down that mountain and bringing those caseloads down. Contact tracing, I think, you know, is something that the vast majority of Americans have never heard of. Tell us just a little bit about w what the method is and, it, and its history and, and your history with it before we turn to the actual program that you're implementing. Well, you've written about this, Stephen, beautifully. <laughs> that I could just tell you about it if you want. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, it goes back to John Snow. There was a cholera outbreak in London, and uh, John Snow traced uh, all the cases back to a single pump in London. And his uh, intervention was that he took the handle off the pump. And then the cholera cases started going downward. That was sort of the first major demonstration of how uh, what we now call shoe leather epidemiology is just critical to um, uh, to stopping uh, outbreaks. And so we've used it again and again and again. People will know that when you have, you know, E. coli and people are starting, you get sick from E. coli uh, uh, contaminations, you know, we do the contact tracing. We It's been used so many times. 
I, I'm an old, you know, TB doc. And so, uh, of course, for tuberculosis, uh, we use contact tracing very, very aggressively. It's just the most tried and true fundamental component of any public health effort. I want to turn to the project in, in Massachusetts. Um, first off, how did, how did that come about? As I was watching um, what I thought were just extremely premature uh, you know, capitulation to, to the virus and, and the sense that you can't do anything but just shelter in place, um, I started calling as many people as I could. I called political leaders. I said, you know, what can we do? And then we talked to the folks at Partners in Health, and we thought, let's just take a, a chapter out of the old playbook and try to get the program working in one place. And so I tried to reach different governors. And the one that agreed to take my phone call was, in fact, an old friend of mine, Governor Baker of Massachusetts. And so in my first call with him, I said, you know, the evidence is pretty clear that just social distancing will not bend the curve downward. In other words, what we've seen all over the world is if you do a very strict social distancing, keep people in their homes, what you do is you stop transmission between households. But then very quickly, what happens is that all your new cases come from intra-household transmission. And so we've learned now everywhere that unless you go after those kinds of transmissions as well, you're always going to stay at around one. In other words, you know, the, the, the curve will be flat, but it will stay flat for a very long time. When you say it will stay at around one, just so our listeners understand, that means that you, the, the kind of infection rate, one person will infect on average uh, one other person which will right. not cause the overall outbreak to subside over time. Right. When I told Governor Baker that, and I said, you know, Governor Baker, there's another way to get at this where you're actually aggressively going after the virus, chasing down the virus. And it's just, you know, the, the tried and true public health approach. You do social distancing, but then you do testing, you do contract tracing, you do isolation and quarantine, and you treat the people who are sick. That if we put those pieces together, it will be very different. We'll be going on offense as opposed to just sitting and waiting to see what the virus will do. And he got that. He said, you know, that makes sense to me. And at the time I told him, but you know, the vast majority of the public health community is saying that this is impossible. It's too late. You can't do it. And so um, you have to be ready for people being very critical uh, of your announcement, of people even ridiculing this announcement. And he said, um, I'll take that risk, which I think was a great act of leadership. He took the risk. And he and the Secretary of Health, Mary Lou Sutters, both said, all right, we're up for this. So we announced it. And I'm very happy to say that uh, rather than uh, ridicule and, and, and criticism, uh, more and more governors are now very interested in implementing this kind of uh, system in their states as well. So can you explain to our listeners what exactly is happening when someone is being contact traced? What happens is the minute there's a positive test, first of all, there should be places all over Massachusetts, and we're putting those in place now, where people can go to get tested. So if somebody has symptoms, uh, they should raise their hand or they should just go to their doctor and they should go and they get tested as quickly as possible. Uh, we have to now uh, speed up as much as we can the turnaround in the testing results. Because you know if it takes five days, six days, seven days to get the testing results back, well, in that time, they're going to infect everyone they're going to infect anyway. In China and Korea, they got it down to as low as four hours, and then they can act on that. And acting on it means either if you have a five-bedroom home and you can isolate effectively at home, then you stay at home. 
But if you're five people living in a one-room uh, apartment, then we're going to have dorm rooms and empty hotel rooms uh, where you can go. You'll get medical care, you'll get food, you'll be well taken care of, and then you'll be able to protect the people who are in your household from also getting infected. If you're not positive yet, on the test, but we have a high suspicion that you might be, you know, either uh, if you can, you quarantine at home. And if you can't, we will strongly urge you to go to one of these places where, again, we can watch you, we can provide you with everything you need, you know, wait for the appropriate period of time uh, until we're confident that we know whether you're positive or not. What does this process look like for the person doing the contact tracing? Uh, What happens once someone is found to be positive? This is going to be done mostly by phone. When your test turns positive, the uh, result comes immediately to the contact tracing center through actually the local boards of health. The local boards of health and the community health centers are the ones who are seeing the patients and and ordering the tests. Then the information comes to us. We make a phone call. We get uh, a sense of who they've been in contact with. We call them and we help them to find a place to get tested, put together a plan uh, for how they're going to either stay uninfected or not infect others if we find them to be positive. So it's very labor intensive. Right now, interestingly, uh, the average number of contacts per positive case is only about two or three. And that's kind of what you'd expect when we're in a situation where there's a very uh, high degree of social distancing. The real test for this system is going to be when we open things up. Everyone's trying to decide, once you get to a certain number of cases, will it be okay to open things up? Well, it will be, uh, but only if you have a really robust testing, contact tracing, isolation, quarantine system in place. Because uh, what's going to happen once you open things up is it's not going to be just two or three contacts. It's going to be a lot more. So we're going to have to have a huge capacity to get at everyone that you might have had contact with. It's going to be a very um, logistically challenging effort. But, you know, Stephen, we've got no choice. Right. And this is something that we've learning again and again and again. It's the only way down the mountain. We are not going to miraculously have a downward moving curve just because we're the United States or just because you're a wealthy OECD country. You got to do the work. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code WONDERY to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. You can live out your MasterChef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. 
we've also seen both in in places like South Korea and Singapore, and then coming out of Silicon Valley, there are kind of more high tech versions of contact tracing that are being discussed. Apple and Google famously have this partnership that will use background Bluetooth signals to do a digital version of that. What's your take on those efforts? The folks in Massachusetts are in very active discussions with the folks at Apple and Google. Uh, but I just don't think there's any uh, replacement for actual human beings. And, and here's what we've learned, Stephen. So we had first thought that these phone calls with people who were COVID positive and then, and then their contacts, we thought at first that they would last 10 to 15 minutes. Uh, but they're going longer than that because people are starved for information. People are often very lonely. Mm-hmm. And so the human element of this, that we're calling them and saying, we care about you. Uh, we care about how you're doing. We care about making sure that you have food and medicine and everything you need. And we also care uh, about you, uh, your desire, uh, at least we hope, your desire uh, to not infect other members of your family. So there always is going to have to be a sort of manual, people-centered element of this. Uh, and if we can use these apps, that would be great. But I mean, there's a lot of talk about an, um, uh, one of these apps in, in Singapore, but uh, we actually had that person who was running that program on a call, and something like 13% of the people in Singapore had downloaded that app with a very specific groups of people, very tech-savvy people who are using lots of different apps. These things could play a role. But my concern about the apps is that I don't want the apps to become part of this larger discourse of saying, it's impossible to do the shoe leather, leather public health stuff. So let's see if an app will save us. The way the world has changed fundamentally is that we now know that a single virus can bring down the entire global economy. And now that we know that, uh, these systems that are able to pounce quickly and, and snuff out outbreaks, we have to have those in place everywhere. There's just no way around it. And, and the best pl- time to start building that program is right now. One other question that you know comes up a lot with this sort of stuff is the privacy one, right? So you're talking about, in a sense, a government backed agency organization that is (laughs) calling people up and asking them who they're talking to and getting those people's information so that they can call them as well. You know, what's your response to the privacy concerns? So this is why it's so important to have state health authorities in the lead, right? This is not something that can be run by an NGO, uh, by, you know, some other kind of private sector organization. Uh, You have to have the state government's Uh, in control, managing the data. So we have found a way of connecting uh, one piece of equipment. And this this is a it's a Salesforce, uh, uh, you know, customer relations management kind of uh, software. And we've connected it to the state's uh, uh, monitoring uh, system. The information is kept private. Uh, We are uh, compliant with all HIPAA regulations, which are, you know, the the health privacy um, uh, rules. We're getting the information we need to do the work we're doing, but then at the same time, uh, maintaining privacy. And it should be altogether doable because we've done this with other diseases uh, at the state level for uh, for many, many years. So finally, I, I just wanted to ask you about where we want to be at the at the end of this process, right? Like when we come out of this, hopefully we will come out of this, and we recognize the importance now of, of all of these techniques that we've been talking about. Um What's the kind of systems that we want to have in place to prepare for the next outbreak beyond COVID-19? I mean, one thought I've been thinking about is, you know, we should have testing centers 
set up ready to go, you know, in every pharmacy from day one. And maybe this kind of contact tracing army kind of in reserve for the early days rather than two or three months into the outbreak. You know, anything else that you see is important in that in that prep for the next wave? Let me start by talking about what we hope to see in Massachusetts. I mean, what would what could it look like? Our great hope, of course, is that uh, once we get all the pieces in place and once we start bending the curve downward, we're going to get to a very small number of cases uh, per day. New Zealand uh, is going to get to zero. And the, the word that we use when you get to zero is elimination. And that's that would be great if we could get there. What we'd like to see is uh, an army of contact tracers ubiquitous testing, the ability to test everyone we want to test, including contacts of, you know, just people that we suspect uh, are, who are completely asymptomatic, but who we suspect, you know, may uh, have had a very uh, close contact with someone who is positive, be able to spread out and, and separate all these people so that we really stop every transmission event. If we can do that, even if there are you know, 50, 60, 100 cases a day, uh, we can open up the, the uh, economy just like they did in Korea. And so what you'd have is a, an extremely souped up, hyped up mechanism uh, for uh, chasing down every single person with symptoms, even maybe every single person with prodromal symptoms, even you know, people who can't smell or people who you know, begin to have a, the, the beginnings of a scratchy or sore throat. Uh, if we can do that, then we can actually get back to work. There's going to be a lot of people hired and you know, 35,000 applicants for the 1,000 people we brought on board. Part of it is people who just need work, you know, uh, you know, folks who lost their jobs uh, in, in, because of COVID, uh, but a whole other group of people who just want to be on, on the positive side of going after the virus. Lots of people interested in doing this. And so lots of people are going to be trained in how to be contact tracers. For the next three, four, five, six months, I think you know the best case scenario is what we're seeing in China, what we're seeing in Korea, uh, uh, what we'll soon see in Australia and New Zealand, where there is still hypervigilance around um, you know stopping outbreaks, where social distancing is still very much in place. You know, I, I don't know how the restaurant industry is going to survive if we only allow 40% of the usual capacity in. Uh, but I know that they're trying to be creative themselves and figure out, you know, what might work. The social distancing will be in place for a while. Uh, but I think that a lot of economic activity uh, will, will, will be able to be restarted over the next few months. Now, on the governmental level, I just I hope that this has taught us that we should never be caught so flat footed again. Dr. Jim Kim, thank you for the work that you're doing. You're on the front lines of this. We really appreciate it. We really appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to talk to us. Stay safe out there, my friend, and and keep up the good work. Thanks very much, Stephen. Thanks for listening to Fighting Coronavirus from American Innovations. If you want to help share our series with others, please tell your friends to subscribe and give us a five-star review. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and every major listening app, or you can listen ad-free on Wondery Plus. Also, we want to hear from you. What topics do you want us to talk about? Do you have stories you want to share from your experience? You can email us questions, or even better, email us a voice memo with your question or story at fightingcorona at wondery.com. That's fightingcorona at wondery.com. This series is hosted and produced by me, Stephen Johnson. 
For more information about my books on the history of science and medicine, including my latest one, Enemy of All Mankind, you can visit my website at stephenberlinjohnson.com. The show is also produced by Natalie Shisha and Michelle Lands. Sound design by Jake Gorski. Executive producers are Jenny Lauer-Beckman, Marshall Louie, and Hernan Lopez for Wondering. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Fighting Coronavirus from American Innovations ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Yo, Trey. Yeah, Kevin, what's up, man? I was just thinking what would have happened if Drew Brees didn't fail his physical with the Dolphins and ended up playing under Nick Saban in Miami. There's a good shot the Finns establish a dynasty. Tom Brady and Bill Belichick probably don't become goats, and Tuscaloosa doesn't become the center of the college football universe. That's a butterfly effect for real. Hey, I'm Trey Wingo. And I'm Kevin Frazier. We're teaming up on a new weekly sports podcast from Wondery Alternate Routes. As former sports center anchors and current sports obsessives, we're consumed by all the what-if questions that make being a sports fan so excruciatingly fun. If you're like us, then you also live and die on the fallout from every drop pass. Or play call. Intercepted at the goal line by Malcolm Butler. Sorry, Marshawn, still too soon. Each week on Alternate Routes, we'll take a flashpoint in sports, break down what actually happened, then explore every alternate scenario and the ripple effects it would have caused. Follow Alternate Routes on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.